0: everybody to another edition of are you not entertained here to entertain you are my dear friends charles morgan and roger mitchell roger come in are you there i'm good i'm here i'm ready to roll rock and roll and a boy and giles uh in sunny london
1: yeah i am ready and present and ready to do your bidding grant excellent
0: how about you grant you're no longer in quarantine are you i'm no longer in quarantine though i, I like the fact that we've scheduled this recording at the same time that Scotland are playing, Rog, to give you something to distract you yeah, from yeah, the misery. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's already one down, so um, we'll, yeah. Let's about that the better. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yep. Well, uh, by the end of this interview, we'll know the final score, Rog, and we can either mention it or not. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see yeah. how we go. Um, well, look, we've got another fantastic guest, Jars.
1: Why don't you tell people who is joining us? Yeah, I'm very chuffed as an old mate of mine, Brett Gosper, who for many people who have. Uh, Rugby fans will know that for about nine years, he was the CEO of World Rugby and presided over an extraordinary period of change within the game, not only um, with rugby returning to the Olympic uh, Games in 2016 in Brazil, but also presiding over two massive World Cups, one in England in 2015, and then one in Japan, which was very groundbreaking in 2019. He was also, as you'd expect from a former ad man, the guy who rebranded what was called the International Rugby Board to World Rugby. And um, he's a very genial, decent Aussie. There are a few of them. And uh, he's had an extraordinary career because not only did he do all that in rugby, but he worked in the advertising industry for about 25 years before with brands like Ogilvy and have us McCann and TWA i mean really Tops, at, at the very yeah, big clubs, yeah. at, at the very very highest level um he was also a half decent rugby player he played um, his club rugby at Racing Club from 1981 to 1990 which was very much the time of the Corinthian uh, French club scene where they played in pink bow ties and had a very jolly good time um, and splendid. was one hell of a player which he wouldn't tell you very much about because he is wonderfully self-effacing and now He's um, taken on a role at the beginning of this year as um, head of the NFL for the UK and Europe. And as we know, the NFL is one of the very giant uh, franchises and has got big designs, obviously in the UK, but now in Europe. So a great, great pleasure to have him on.
0: Fantastic. Well, with a bio like that, there seems little sense in the three of us wasting people's
1: time talking. We should actually speak to Brett. What do you reckon? Sounds good. Brett Gosper, a very warm welcome to the big interview. Good to have you on the show. It's great to be here, Giles. Thank you for having me. Well, it's nice. You've, you've, all the time I've known you, you've been a rugby man, and you were a rugby man before that. But now you're into the whole NFL world. How's it going? What's it like to work with all the, the Americans? It's good. It's, it's it's a you know very different environment and
3: landscape. But um, there's a there's a high quality person, very driven uh, people that, that are working here, very commercially focused. They really know what they stand for, and and they're very good at engaging with with fans and, and building their fan base. And, and, and my role here is to help steer a growth across that fan base and the engagement of those fans and the monetization of those fans across Europe in the coming
1: years. So it's, it's an exciting brief and um, working you know, closely with the team in New York. Well, before we dig into that, because we've got a lot of questions, both about your time in rugby and, and actually in advertising as well. Yeah, But before that, you have an amazing CV. Um, you were a proper rugby player. I know it was a long time ago, but you were, you were very decorated and you played a long time in Paris. But not many people will know, or not everyone will know, that you also grew up in a certain amount of kind of Australian sporting royalty with your father being very a very senior figure within the Olympics as well. So just sort of just to kick off, growing up in Australia as a young athlete, do you think that sport was a kind of predestiny for you, that it was always going to be part of your life? Or was it something that happened sort of by accident? Probably totally by accident, except I guess,
3: uh, you know, I grew up in a family where my you know father was an Olympic athlete and an Olympic silver medalist. Commonwealth Games gold medalist as well, I won't cut him short. And so <laughs> in that context, you were always focused on the sport that you were doing. You were conscious that you had a father who was very successful and so on. But to be fair, in the rugby days, I didn't really think a lot about ambition or where I was headed until quite, quite late on in... You know, late school and, and early university years and so on. So, uh, look, it was a great context, and and Australia itself is a is a place where you are pretty focused on sport, even if you have little ambition. You focused on playing, watching, and being involved in the in the conversation in Australia. So it's a, it's
1: a bit like England, but probably even more so. I'd say uh, an obsession with uh, the with, with the country. And I'm dying to ask, I never asked you this, is so what happens? You're a young Australian, you're playing a rugby, you're a good player, you're just, I think, broken into the advertising industry. How did the Paris, the, the wrestling club invitation come over? How, how? What was the chronology that sent the young man to, to Paris and then for what was quite a long part of your life? I was an Australian under-21 player. I played an Australian
3: trial at 19 and then played another trial when I was 20 for Australia against the rest of Australia for the UK tour in 81 and I missed selection. Um, uh, I'd like to add that David Campisi missed selection that year too. So obviously the selectors (laughs) were pretty shabby and uh, he played the same trial. And uh, in order to get fit to come back and have another chance at a, at a Wallaby Jersey, I wanted to go and play in Europe and Paul McLean, who was the Australian fly half at the time said you ought to go and play in France. I know a guy who'll set you up. And they mooted my name to to a French uh, group of people in the racing club, and Nice actually, you know, made maybe an offer to come and play for a season. And uh, actually, I, Nice would have been nice, but somewhere mm-hmm. in Paris, I thought, look, you know, that's an exciting city, and maybe I can also pursue a business career there if that's what I choose over time. But I went for six months with a pair of football boots or rugby boots in the bag, and, and stayed 14 years in the end, as it turned out, mm-hmm. in Paris, and actually never returned to Australia.
1: Did you speak any French? I mean, were you literally thrown in at the deep end, knowing nobody and maybe not having the language as well? Yeah, I think I failed GCSE
3: French. um, (laughs) And therefore, I got thrown thrown into the French environment. In those days, a few people spoke very much English. And certainly the rugby environment that I was in, I was forced to speak French. So after a certain amount of time in France, even I picked up the language pretty fluently. And it's served me well and been a great a bonus in my life to be able to be fluent in French and discover that culture and
0: and even in business still use it enormously. Brett just there, there'll be so many people listening to this that find it impossible to imagine a time where top class rugby players had a day job because you know that that hasn't been the way so just, just take us back to that and explain how that works right in, in practicality being that at that level on the sporting field but having a whole, a to hold down a nine-to-five job.
3: It is quite interesting because we were the last of the Mohicans. So I started playing in 1990 and obviously rugby turned professional, uh, you know, pretty soon after that, five or or six years after uh, about. France never, I don't think, was particularly amateur. I don't think it was a concept the French really understood. The French concept of amateurism was that, It wasn't your only job, not whether you got paid or not. It was if it's your only job, you're a professional. If it's not your only job, you're obviously not. Right. Um, And in the meantime, you know, the racing club, you know, through the 80s where I played, uh, we all had regular income. Um, You know, it wasn't going to make us rich, but it was for a a 20, 21-year-old. It was very, very good money and, and you know, they looked after your apartment and all living costs and gave you a bit of cash and it was a great way to, to, to discover it. So I was, at the time, I was interning at a, an ad agency called Ogilvy and & Mather and for the eight years until I stopped playing rugby was working for ad agencies and literally I'd go to, I'd, I'd have to clock off from work, run out the door at six, beyond the field at Colombe, which is their, which is the Olympic Stadium actually of, of the, um, uh, the Olympics in Paris in, in, in 1924, the Chariots of Fire Olympics, that was our home stadium. So I'd be there by 7.30 on the field, train till 9.30, dinner with the team till about 10.30, 11, car home, and it started again. So five days a week we had training. It was a blackboard session on the Friday. And then we'd fly somewhere in France, usually down in the southwest, obviously that's where all the teams were. So we'd fly down or train if it wasn't too far, play in front of, you know, 15 20,000 for a club game in France in those days um, and wow. uh, and then catch the, the the train or plane back sunday night and start work again so you had an incredibly full life and you lived this 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 dual two lives of you know business and and you know it's great for the players today to be able to focus on their rugby but i do think i was incredibly privileged to be able to pursue and and, and the guys in our team you know we had about six or seven french international players on the side you know, they were playing on weekends as amateurs, so-called, you know, in front of the usual fifty or 60,000 and television audiences and all the rest of it and going to work on a, on a Monday. Well, it is unusual when you think back on it now.
2: Brett, you know, that part of your story is the one that I think is really, really interesting. You know, myself, I went to Italy as a non-Italian speaker in some part of my career, and I kind of think that kept me in good stead. But, I mean, being a, a high-profile sports star... Good-looking young man working in an agency, Paris. Geez, that—that is living the dream, Brett. I mean, tell us about that a little bit. Come on. It
3: was. It was. I mean, the best teams were in the south of France, but all the media was in Paris. So we were promoted beyond our. our, We punched above our weight in media, let's say, um, and we were conscious of the fact that the better teams were down in south. And you may remember, you may recall some of that era we played uh, two finals with pink bow ties on and the racing club of the day pulled all sorts of stunts. And the reason we played those stunts was because it was the only way we felt we could intimidate the opposition because we respected the fact they were probably better than we were, but that if we played to that image of being the precious Parisian film stars and showbiz, we called ourselves, then that's going to aggravate the opposition. And we aggravated them all the way for us to get into a final a couple of times and then win it in 1990. Um, I didn't play in the 1990 uh, final team, which allowed them to win that that year. <laughs> um, it was, you know, we we had the key to the city as as racing club players, nightclubs, restaurants. Couldn't put our hand in our pockets to 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 pay for a beer, but unlike players in the in the towns in the provinces and so on, you could walk through the streets and not be recognised. So if you had a hiding on the weekend, you could. You could hide from the public pretty easily, whereas if you played in Argent or Bayonne or or, or, or Biarritz, then your week was appalling. If you'd lost your game, you couldn't hide from the public, whereas we were very incognito
1: unless we knocked on the door of a nightclub. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I've got to say, I've got to, I've got to chip in here. What Brett says is absolutely right. Many years after he was a player, he and I were in Paris. I don't know why, but for some extraordinary reason, it doesn't matter. Reason, we've, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but we were doing work there, and we go into the uh, the left bank, to the River Gauchent, and into the Saint Germain area, where there are some wonderful restaurants. And I have to tell you that 25 years later, he is still recognised as, oh, Monsieur Gossbert, come in, and and what an armchair ride that was. So I have never thanked you, but I was quite amused when you said you never put your hands in your pocket then, because you don't now.
0: Uh, I was going to say, Charles, the the difference between Brett and you, Brett couldn't put his hand in his pocket. You wouldn't put your hand in your pocket. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. I did try.
2: (laughs) But Brett, allow me me to continue on this thing, because um, the thing about the ad agency, the thing about uh, Ogilvy, you know, David Ogilvy was one of the absolute doyens of, you know, and famously called Sir Martin, what he called him. So it's very, very interesting, all of this. Uh, He was actually in the office next door because he was, at the time,
3: he was the honorific chairman and he was writing his, a book in the office yeah. actually
2: next door to the one I had. So I, I got to know him a little bit, which was a real treat for me. Well, you see, you know, I can imagine that because, you know, I think one of the things we'll get onto later in the interview is about when you're managing what you've managed, uh, rights holders, different stakeholders, the, the EQ, the ability to work a room with diplomacy and with politics. I'm kind of betting a little bit that David Ogilvy had a big part in your success? I don't know if he had a big part. He was certainly, I
3: didn't know him well enough personally for that to be true. Although, as I say, I interacted with him quite a lot and had lunch with him a few times, dinner and so on. But the ethos of Ogilvy, which was a very yeah. instructive agency and a very educational agency and all of his culture that he put around it and codified it um was very special but i'll tell you one just very quick story when he wrote his book i asked him if he'd write a little something in the book for me to sign it so i left, I left it on his desk and he and he uh, wrote it he wrote something and left it back on my desk and i opened it up and it said who said rugby players couldn't succeed in advertising? And, of course, I was so proud of it and showed all my friends, God, look at this, David Ogilvy's written this about me and so on. And I walked past his office, I think, the next day, and he said, did you like what I wrote in your book? I said, oh, fantastic that you wrote that. So, such a credit. He said, you didn't know I played rugby, did you? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, taking the credit for it, from my friends. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, but the, th- the thing is, which I've been very modest about is that, that I find it just fascinating. You were incredibly successful rising to the top of the ad agency world. I mean, at more than just one company, switching companies. In my experience, that's not that normal in terms of people that are running rights holders just now. They normally come up the administrator route or something like that. I mean, w- what lessons did you get from the world of narrative, the world of communication that you find so pertinent in what you're doing now with NFL and before with World Rugby? Um,
0: well,
3: I think, for, first of all, when you work in the advertising business, you cut across and get involved in many, many different sectors as a, as a consultant, and you're trying to get very quickly to the root of what their issue or problem might be. And 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 that is an exercise in itself. I think it's very useful if you're changing jobs, as I did from advertising into into world rugby and changing sectors. So it it, it made me um, you know really analyse where I was headed and ask the right questions. And in the interview, I was interviewing those who were interviewing me as much as they were interviewing me to understand what the company was about, what the brand was about, what the business where the business was heading, and so on. So I think it's that. Uh, that desire to really understand Mm. what that business stands for and how it can work towards hitting, hitting their public and aligning their public with that vision of their own business. And so I think, you know, that's not rocket science, but that's an automatic trait. And I think at the time I turned up at world rugby, that was needed. Yeah. And, if it had been three years earlier or three years later I might have been irrelevant but at that time I could sense that it was there were a bit of a cross the uh, you know fork in the road hence you know we went through a whole brand uh, uh project where we we worked out what the brand should stand for we changed the name from IRB to World Rugby so that it can engage more with its, with its public um the the, the, the that the messenger, if you like, that, that 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 brand sending out the message would be recognized, particularly as we're on a conquest strategy, and that if you were outside of the church, the IRB meant nothing. Whereas if you're outside of the church, world well, rugby actually meant, I know who's talking to me, and I know what they're trying to say. And we built the positioning of the of, of, of the of the brand around character and, and building character and so on. So all of the, and, and these were designed to, to to work across geographies, but also across gender. Uh, and so on. So I think, you know, in that, in that sense, my advertising curiosity and, and 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 career was relevant at that point in time.
1: And the eight years, I think, seven or eight, eight years, nine years, whatever nine, it was, eight, eight and a half, enough, I think. Eight and a half, yeah. You, you, you said in the in the top of the show what you presided over, and some ama- a couple of amazing World Cups as well. There was the Sevens at the Olympics. When you look back on that, and you're a man of rugby, so you understand the game as a player. Uh, then as a marketeer is through through your advertising career, and then you come in for the first time as an administrator. When you look back on that career, what are you most proud of? And second question, what would you love to have changed if you could have that time again of, of maybe advancing further than you did? Sure, sure. Uh, I look look back on, and again, these things happened on my
3: watch, so I'm proud they happened on my watch, but I wasn't necessarily you know, totally responsible for some of the outcomes. In fact, you know, sometimes I was a a minor player or a more major player, depending on what the subject was. But on my watch, let's call it, I was very proud, obviously, of the two World Cups because that's where you generate, you know, the money and the impact for the sport uh, across the world and and, and the sport relies on World Cup. So record-breaking World Cup in England, uh, men's World Cup record-breaking uh, World Cup and very different uh, historic World Cup in Asia for the first time with Japan. So very proud of those uh, two, two, two major events. Uh, proud of what we did around the area of concussion and injury. I think you know we were we 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 opened the dialogue and w- were very transparent and progressive in the way we managed all of those protocols and so on. I think the way we drove women. As a, as, a, as a priority on the agenda, and the Olympics were part of that. Obviously, the Olympic entry was a was a was an incredible moment for the sport as well. And again, you know, a lot of people were responsible for that happening. So, so they'd probably be the highlights. I think we also did some very mod some modern changes to the governance, which took a lot of input from a lot of different people. What 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 did I miss out on? And I I'd say the major miss from my point of view was when we tried to set up the world. Nations uh, League, um, and we were doing that with an underwriting of a, of, a, of a marketing company, and it threw up an enormous amount of money over a long period of time, probably very similar to the money that some of these unions ended up making um, by selling equity. That was, in, that was in front, wasn't it? That's right, that's right. And um, we thought that with a promotion relegation that would open the game up to, to other economies and other markets like the States, like Japan... Um, and eventually others as well. Um, And the money that that would provide and the certainty that would provide um, and the divisions and and so on was a great solution for the sport. As it turned out, we didn't sell it well enough. Um, We hit up against a brick wall for a number of reasons um, and uh, the sport's now living a a, a different different direction that 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 it's taking. So that I don't even call it a regret because I think we did everything we could. Although you always think maybe we could have done it a different way, it was what it was, and and I guess that's what we we really didn't achieve. And I know there's some regret within the rugby fraternity, not just sitting out here on the outside, but but that's how it was.
0: Brett, can, can I ask you because I'm I'm fascinated by this, and it's a great opportunity to ask the question. When you talk about these record-breaking World Cups, and and we watch tournament after tournament just become bigger, and as a as a fan of not even a particular sport, but sport in general, it's something that just kind of bleeds into our conscious that the Rugby World Cup is coming and it's big. And then the Japanese uh, Rugby World Cup came and it was big. But for us, that's just, you know, the job you do is to make that happen, right? We don't see it happening. it just we're aware of it and, and it builds and it builds. And even if you're not a massive rugby fan, you find yourself getting pulled into the excitement of these tournaments. How do you guys go about doing that from an administration perspective, and how has social media advanced that? Because it must be a tremendous tailwind for you.
3: Yeah, look, so- social media has democratized a certain amount of access to the to the sport and video uh, numbers of, 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 of videos that each you know social media can provide during the and the clips, etc. You know, broadcasters is obviously a very large large part of that revenue in, in terms of your social medias providing some of the impact but not, not obviously the revenue um, although there are now linkages with sponsorship and so on but I, I guess you know it's it's about 48 games each each time a, a World Cup and 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 what makes it grow is ensuring that we get maximum visibility in new markets and new countries and that it becomes more of an obsession the markets that we're already in and I, and I think you know we know and obviously I've got to re-hark back to my statistical memory here, but we, we know I think there are about 350 to 400 million fans, depending on how you count of rugby in the world. Both the Olympics and the World Cup each add about 10% to your fan base, just that one huge event. So six six days at the Olympics is the same as six weeks of a World Cup in terms yeah. of the, the fans it puts on, but they put them on in very different geographic footprints to each other. Um but it's, look, each time it's trying to extract maximum value out of your broadcasters, your sponsors, your partners and so on and just creating the the, the biggest impact, hence uh, heading off to Asia and on that time zone and in that culture striking some impactful relevance in that part of the world was, was crucial to forming what is now you know, uh, the third uh, market as a broadcast market. Um, and, you know, we saw, I think, this week that the US announced themselves as a potential candidate for the next yeah. two World Cups, one of them, uh, the two World Cups. Again, building that footprint um, and, 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 and making that a key contributor to the funding of the sport will be will be critical and, and very attractive for sport.
2: Brett, coming back a little bit to in front and CVC, uh, you know, like many sports, but maybe particularly in rugby, It does suffer a little bit from all these different stakeholders, the the domestic rugby unions, the professional clubs, Pro 14, yourselves, Six Nations, British Rock Lions, all competing for player time, all competing for sponsor dollars, broadcaster dollars, Uh, the game broadcast over different people telling uh, the, the, the story of the sport. I can understand what you said about, you know, the regret or, or maybe, you know, the, the missed opportunity. But, you know, what do you think CVC are trying to do now by taking little pieces of all these rights holders? Are, are they trying to uh, get um, enough chips on the board so that they can dictate how the sport is shaped from a governance point of view?
3: No, look, I think, you know, CVC... Uh, also uh, contribute to the sport in, in other ways. You know, this is the way, the direction of the sport now and so on. And CBC, their goal is to make money over a period of time. That's what that's, you know, whether it be seven or eight to 10 years, their goal is to, is, is, is to make money and then at some point exit. And, and they're very clear about that goal, um, but they know also in order to, to make money that the sport has to be well-managed, uh, void of too much controversy, and more aligned, and I think in the new era, let's call it, CVC are playing a role in aligning some of those disparate partners that we, uh, as well, rugby fi- often find hard to pull together. It is a fragmented sport from a from a commercial, uh, you know, centre of gravity. You know, it's very dispersed, and um, and 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 they do compete more than they should. Those different entities that you just mentioned. Um, so no, I, th- I think you know, CVC are trying to find their best way in the code to make a maximum amount of sport. And to be fair, at this time, given what we've all been going through on COVID, um, uh, as it turns out, that's probably a welcome injection of cash that might not otherwise have been there and has helped also sustain the sport through this period. Um, So look, they're playing their role, but uh, they are there to invest and make money. They don't want to become the governing body, but they do sit at the table now and they will influence some of the decisions made. Um, and it will be in the interest of the commercialisation, the growth, the monetary growth of the sport. Maybe that's aligned to actually the,
1: the right governance of the sport too, and hopefully that's the case. So, Brett, rather like the 20-year-old boy who flew out from Melbourne to Paris to, to start a new life, then in sort of, well, I guess 40 years later, you packed your uh, rugby boots away and decided to take on an American football helmet and throw yourself into a sport that I suspect... You knew not that much about other than maybe watching a bit on telly, and you know you're not the spring chicken. Why? <laughs> what was the, What was the What was the drive? I mean, it's a wonderful role and it's a wonderful sport, but I wonder what, I felt, what compelled you. Like a couple of things. I, I think you look at where you are and you look at where you're
3: going, and I think when I looked at where I was, I felt that at about nine years in, I'd probably done all that I could with the energy I had and the vision I had, if you like, and and so on. And I was not certain that in the next two to three years I could achieve much more than I had and felt that there were people there that perhaps could. Um, And, look, I could have uh, kept working hard through, I guess, one of the regrets is I'd love to have been there at the Rugby World Cup in France for obvious reasons, Um, but just felt... Uh, Maybe and and the trigger, if you like, I'd I'd probably still be there. Was that you know someone did tap me on the shoulder for this role, um, and it just felt at my at my age and stage that um, to still be learning, to still go and do something new and exciting. Also, the curiosity of an incredible organization and success, probably the most valuable successful uh, sports product that there is, the NFL was something that would be exciting for me. So. Um, and it, there were some similarities, you know, in terms of, of of growing new markets, creating visibility, engaging with 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 uh, fans, and building a a, a, a a franchise and a brand. So there was a lot of unknown excitement, but a, a little bit of known comfort, and just the change was something. After eight or nine years, the politics in rugby, although it's 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 not like corporate politics, it's very predictable national self-interest politics, which you're navigating and trying to influence over the years, does does get a bit tiring after a while. And I just felt it was time to to move on, let others get on with it. And we had a good bench at 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 World Rugby and Alan Gilpin's taken over. He'll do a brilliant job and and um he'll have more energy and 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 more (laughs) ideas as to how to, to manage that
1: environment now than perhaps I will at the end of nine years. And you've you've been in in place what four or five five months, six months, something like that. Yeah it's about what is it four or five months, I think. And tell us a little bit about what you've you've recently been announced, uh, uh, launching in, in Germany, and, and what's what's the vision? It sounds very exciting. Yeah, look, it's what you discover when you actually get under the covers. Here
3: is there is a huge fan base um, in in different parts of the world. There's about seven core markets outside of the United States um, for uh, for the NFL, um, and the, the you know big markets in Europe are, are the UK, Germany, and, and and France in particular. There are You know, 19 million fans in Germany, uh, 16 million fans in the UK, about 3.5 million avid fans in each of those markets, and growing at a rate of about 15-20% a year, and broadcast audiences are growing at similar rates as well. Um, So it is on a very strong growth phase. There's a certain amount of of. Serenity is probably the wrong word because it seems to be an organisation that's always asking itself questions and, and, and trying to do better and, and, and commercially outdo itself. But you know they've, they've, they've signed a collective bargaining agreement with the players that's a long-term agreement, and they've done a global they've done their global broadcast deals in the next ten years, which you've read about. And there's a certain there's a certainty or a, or a, or, a, or, a, or a serenity about their future over the next decade, and so where they can make the right strategic choices. And work yeah. towards yeah. you know some invested outcomes like international um, uh, and, and other areas that they're investing in. So it, it, it's it's very exciting. Germany, yeah, we we have two to four games in in London a year. We've had four. The Jags host two games, Jaguars, and then we put on two games, which are part of a four game compulsory rotation into international now, which is a new thing starting next year. So international is very much embedded in the in the scheduling. And we hope to take, we're going to do a tender process, a little bit like a mini Olympic bid uh, with rival German cities, having the possibility to bid like a World Cup for the right to host over the next four four years and beyond an NFL game in the country. And uh, it's creating a lot of excitement in Germany where, the, where, where obviously NFL sits very strongly.
0: You came from a sport that is very much club-based. You know, Racing Club is a, is a very iconic organisation. In, in the world of football, you know, we have football clubs, we have rugby clubs. Uh, and then you go on to manage a national uh, event like the World Cup, which is based around uh, you know, national and cultural identity. And now you find yourself in the middle of arguably the ultimate franchise model uh, with the NFL. How have you found the difference between, between the two? R- you know, rugby is, as Ronald Giles used the word Corinthian, but I think he's absolutely right. And then this, this hardcore franchise model of American sport.
3: Yeah, look, it, it's, you know, rugby's not the finished article you kind of get the feeling NFL is in a way, look, obviously everything's a work in progress, but it's a very mature uh, brand and business that understands itself. That's, that's equalized itself with salary caps and shared revenues. And it's a very grown in in, in many ways. I think um, some of what was, uh, was being sought after by the super league and so on was very much on the NFL model. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, a, 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 a closed house business that, that 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 can look after its members in a way to grow the sport, in an intelligent way, and so on. So, uh, you know, very commercially focused, uh, and the model itself is being built by people from you know through the decades to get to this the, the, this model, which is obviously working incredibly well, both commercially from a fan-facing point of view, but also for its 32 different owners, which are the families that own the clubs, other than Green Bay Packers, which is a a fan-owned entity and so on. So, you know, very, very different culture. At the same time, it's a sporting culture. Um, and I find a lot of similarities with rugby. They talk a lot about character and values as we did in in, in, in rugby. Player welfare is a, is, is a priority with the NFL. Sometimes yeah. you don't see that from the outside, but when you're inside yeah. here, I, I can see from all the committee meetings that I'm in and so on that player welfare is hugely important in the NFL and, and, the, and some of the scientific work they do. Um, is extraordinary actually when they when they point themselves at it in the way that I can see it, it is incredibly impressive. So lots of lots of lots of similarities, and of course you know the people who are in the sport love the sport, um, talk about the sport, and that again is familiar territory. It's a, it's it's you know it's a language and culture that you understand if you, you know, around the the boardrooms and so on. Um, it, it is a, it is a sport after all, and not just a business.
2: This isn't a trick question it, it really is i think no trick really <laughs> um <laughs> you know a, a lot of people that that look at you know what the nba does with nba international or europe and yourself it's 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 about what what your main objective is and what your secondary ones are you know it is your main objective to grow a fan base for american teams so that you can sell better the, the rights to the NFL proper in new territories? Or is it, as some suggest, that you want more participation so that you may even find some players and some player talent? Or, or do you even think one day that the the NFL can have um, European leagues that, that are, are actually run by the NFL with franchises?
3: Yeah, the last one doesn't seem to be on the table at all, but certainly the first two are very interlinked. The first uh, objective is to grow the value of the NFL in the markets outside of the domestic market, as they call it, which is the USA. So more fans engaging with the NFL brand in more ways and monetizing that engagement, whether it be through uh, Madden NFL, the video game, the -the over-the-top platform, which is Game Pass, whether it be the merchandise, that's sold, whether it be the broadcast values and so on, um, you know, they really do have the full um, orchestra of, of, of product which enables that growth to land in the in, in the right places. In terms of participation, though, we do work on participation and participation is very relevant to making the game more relevant to fans. And we also have an academy in the UK where we're, we're trying to produce. We have 80 people in an academy here in North London, kids between the age of 16 and 18 who are... Uh, hoping that they'll be picked up by a college coming out the other end of our academy, um, and we have player pathway where we identify players across Europe and across the world that will hopefully make it to, to the uh, to the NFL in a way that will grow the sport and the interest in those markets that, that those players come from. Christian Wade being a rugby playing example of mm-hmm. that, um, and 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 a few others, uh, but you know and there are you know examples of two or three UK based players that have made it. German players, Australian players, um, Canadians, of course, there's quite a few and so on, and they do create relevance to that fan base. So it's both a means to an end, creating more relevance, but it's also driving participation. The other area of participation which is important is flag football, which is like a touch rugby Mm -hmm. version of the game, um, which which has seen enormous growth and their ambitions around that to potentially be an Olympic sport, um, starting with being maybe an optional sport at the 28 Olympics in Los Angeles, which would be appropriate given it's being hosted by the US and so on. So There's a lot of discussion and interest around that possibility. And again, that's a women's men's sport and school in, in schools in the UK and, and a real growth grassroots product that the NFL oversees with the uh, with the governing bodies as well.
2: Hmm. Uh, we had Al Guido on uh, a couple of months ago from the 49ers and you know one of the things we said to him that that the challenge even in the domestic market in the US for NFL is that people's faces are covered and it's really hard to market them. Especially to, you know, what, what is the, the the younger audience? You know, you said, you know, the, the academies for 16 to 18 year old players. One, one could argue that for nurturing a sport, that's pretty late in the day. Deep so, the it depends.
3: For some positions, it's not. If you're a quarterback, it's very late. Um, yeah. yeah it on so, ha,
2: ha, what is your strategy, if I can put it in that really awful term, for Gen Z for uh, the NFL in Europe?
3: Well, it's engaging, and actually, our our audience fan scores actually skew towards that audience. Um, It's a much, much younger audience overall than, say, the rugby or or football. So it does skew to that. It does seem to be an added intrigue of the US sports uh, market at that age group than there is at the the older age group. So, Mm. you know, our strategy is to engage hugely across all of those relevant platforms uh, that. For, for that particular target audience. So it's a big part of, of the efforts that we make. Um, and, and it's it's paying dividend.
0: Brett,
1: you grew up with with the, the, the shroud of the Olympic Games, you know, through your father, who was a great athlete, and, and his own involvement with the Olympic movement as well. And I'm wondering, as an outsider looking in, I know you've kept close to the Olympic movement, but they've got their challenges, whether to... I mean, I think the Olympics will take place in Japan in, in in a few weeks, which I have my views on, I'm sure many do. But irrespective of COVID, where do you as an outsider but with a, a great love of the Olympics, I know, where do you think the Olympic movement is and the Olympic Games is? Do you think they're, without getting too political, do you think that the the IOC is, is fit for purpose in a modern era? Do you think the Games touch people in the way that other sports have to be commercially a lot more savvy and understanding audience data i suppose i'm asking do you feel that the ioc is a juggernaut that is just crashing along and needs change or do you think it ain't broke don't fix it well look the answer will be somewhere between the two i i I guess charles
3: it's it's an incredibly resilient organization that puts on an incredible event every four years and it's an event which captures the imagination of the globe and and whether it be media fans, commercial partners, um, it's, it's undeniable that it is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a major, major player in the sporting landscape. And I think, look, they've made uh, huge efforts to streamline their operation, to push back a lot of the organisational aspect to the federations themselves um, and to, you know, downscale or to at least not upscale more than they, they currently are. Um, but it's such a big, uh, complex uh, organization that it's always going to be difficult putting on Olympic games in any context in any country, um, and but hopefully there'll be countries that will still want to step up and and host and prove that you know when it's hosted well it can be a success. So I mean that's a, pr- a pretty banal answer to to, to 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 a much sharper question Joe.
1: Well, how did how did you find you you were very involved? Obviously, rugby sevens reappeared or rugby reappeared at the Olympics in 2016 in Rio and I know you went down there what was that like I mean on a personal level as well as a professional level that must have been very very moving for you
3: Look, it was and and firstly just to acknowledge that I mean what's good about the Olympics is it's good for sport and if you think sport's good then you've got to find a way to make sure the Olympics is operating uh, you know strongly and well and in the interest of everybody but the, the starting point is The Olympics have been great for rugby, so I imagine they're great for all of those other 27 summer sports and however many, is it eight or nine um, winter sports and so on, or is it 11? Um, So it's good for sport. It it drives uh, eyeballs, money, engagement, um, and and that, so therefore it's it's, got to be great. So I should probably tack that onto the back end of the last question. Going to Rio was, I think it was anyone who was in rugby, it was a very moving moment for the sport because obviously we hadn't appeared. No one can remember when it last appeared, which is my home stadium uh, at Cologne at the uh, Charities of Fire Olympics in 1924. So it'd be 90 years out, um, but not many people in the crowd knew that. And the, and the US
1: were defending their title, their usually. But look, it was, it was fantastic. Wasn't Stade de Colomb also where Escape to Victory was filmed? I think It
3: was. You're absolutely right.
1: <laughs> and, and, and a final question for, from me. So ten years from now, um, given as you say the power of the of the NFL, and you may not be in, in in place in ten years' time, but what would you imagine, Crystal Ball for us? What you think American football, NFL, looks like beyond America in 2031? Yeah, look,
3: I think it'll be hopefully an unavoidable success uh, inside America and outside America. Um, you know, i hope in the next decade, maybe there might be some franchises that decamp to other territories outside of the United States. And that's really the call of the owners themselves. Um, but I would hope there's regular uh, NFL games happening, even if the franchises aren't throughout Europe. Um, you know, seeing things happen in, in in the UK, more Germany, France, and maybe Spain and other places, and that you know, the line between what's domestic and international becomes a bit more more blurred. But it is a sport that is destined to grow um, its fan base. It is the complete intersection between sport and entertainment that so many sports brands strive to be, um, and it is a colossus. And I think it will continue to to
0: roll on, grow, and succeed. Brett. Um... The 2021 State of Origin series. Oh, Obviously,
1: yeah.
0: g- game one, one of, one of the more one-sided batterings that I've yeah. seen in my time following it. you can't can't... back into that, yeah. <laughs> your, your thoughts for the Maroons as the as the rest of this th- series plays out?
3: Uh, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> really not close enough to it other than understanding completely how obsessive those two states in particular are and how... I mean, I think it's the highest-rating sporting event yeah, in the it's country, extraordinary. or whatever. Um, I hope Queensland come back, having worn the maroon uh, for rugby union. I am uh, a Victorian, but I decamped to yeah. Queensland for a couple of years rugby before I went to France. And um, I hope Queensland, and I'm sure they will uh, fight back to level the series to make it interesting. Um, but it does look like there's a big gap
0: there for some reason. <laughs> it certainly does. It certainly, <laughs> certainly does. Work it out. Yeah, uh, Brett. Look, thanks so much for for taking this time. This has been it's been such a fun hour to chat and learn all about that journey of yours. It, for anyone that's uh, out there listening, if if you're on social media or anywhere like that, where people can kind of uh, keep in touch with what you're up to, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, do you know, I was on
3: uh, Twitter and we're very active on Twitter for for a long period of time. And actually, during the World Cup in Japan, I clocked off. But you did, this one, yes. Yeah, I, I, I clocked off because I just I just felt. The pressure and the time level of it, I thought, I'm going to do something silly here. I'll clock off for a little while, but I clocked off too long. Apparently, I couldn't come back on, which was which I do regret because I did enjoy it hugely. Uh, it was meant to be a temporary pause, but it became permanent because no, I was feeling the wrong button and exploded my whole account. But <laughs> you can you can find me uh, at the NFL in Leicester Square, or you can find me um, uh, on LinkedIn, and
1: um, always a pleasure. That's the only thing you've got in common with the, the former president, Mr. Trump, I think. Yeah, you both came off Twitter. I'd like to brag that I was banned from Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't there's the, still time. There's still time, time. romantic Red. is that?
0: Yeah, <laughs> up, never give bro. up your dreams. <laughs> Brett, thanks so much. Thank you, Brett.
2: Really, really kind.
0: Great pleasure to, to talk to you guys. And uh, all the best, yeah? Cheers. Thank you. Cheers, Charles. Well, fellas, another hugely enjoyable conversation really really interesting what a top-layered Brett is
1: yeah he's a he, I love it when you have former athletes and people who've then also who are involved in the sports world have, have had an entirely professional career so he's been an athlete he's been a professional in his own world of, of marketing and advertising and then uses those skills I think he's been very successful, what he did at, at World Rugby, as he said, it was a very much a pivotal time. It was a, yeah. if, if the professional change happened in 95, it was really towards the end of the 2000s with trying to get into the Olympics and trying to build the World Cup into a much more profitable sort of competition. And he's a hugely modest man. He had a huge impact. Right. But also, and this isn't necessarily true of all sports administrators, just a top bloke as well yeah yeah no absolutely yeah it was uh,
2: f- fascinating to to hear him talk about you know i think it's a tough shift you know we talked in a groundsman about cricket going into america and rugby going into i i i, I think these kind of like sports um creeping into their non-natural territory is going to get harder and harder and um I think he's got a tough gig. I must admit.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, but having having spent an hour in his company, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't back against it to pull it off, you? No, you, you would not. You would not. You would not. Yeah, fantastic. Well, look, gents, um, another enjoyable session. Uh, all that remains is to thank you out there for listening to us. We appreciate everyone. You do take a moment to rate and review us in the iTunes Store if you if you have the time. It, it really does help, as I as I bore you with every time. If you're not following us on Twitter already, please do so. You'll find us at Entertained R. That's the word A R E.
1: You'll find me at TTMYGH. You'll find me, Giles Morgan, at Giles Morgan 71, on Twitter. And you'll find myself
2: at
0: RPM Como, as in the lake. as in the lake. Gentlemen, until next time. Thank thank, thank you. you.